You've heard about IQ and you've heard about emotional intelligence, but have you considered how to improve your conversational intelligence? On today's episode, how to build conversational intelligence to build trust and get results. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 271. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show will give you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. And if you've been listening to the show for any length of time, and even if you're just tuning in for the first time, you undoubtedly know uh, the importance of leaders having great conversations. And even though almost all of us recognize the importance of great conversation and the importance of communication, many of us still struggle with it. And uh, and while we've heard about things like intellectual intelligence and emotional intelligence uh, over the years, and many of us have worked on those very, uh, very intentionally, Uh, Most of us haven't heard about conversational intelligence, and that's why I am really thrilled to welcome my guest today, who is going to teach us about conversational intelligence, and that is Judith Glazer. She is an organizational anthropologist, and she's one of the most pioneering and innovative change agents, consultants, and executive coaches in the consulting industry, and is the world's leading authority on conversational intelligence neuro-innovation, and we-centric leadership. She's a best-selling author of seven business books, including her newest bestseller, Conversational Intelligence, How Great Leaders Build Trust and Get Extraordinary Results. Judith, welcome to Coaching for Leaders. Dave, it's so terrific to be here. I've been really looking forward to my conversation with you. Well, likewise, and I have to admit to a bit of anxiety in speaking with you as an expert on conversational intelligence. I, I hope I, I hope I meet, <laughs> I hope I can meet the minimum requirements. <laughs> well, it's funny because as you were announcing your show, and I was listening to your voice, I said to myself, and I'll share this with you. I said to myself that you have a very inviting, melodious way of calling people into the show. That's mm. how I felt. Oh, really. Good. Yeah, we can hear sometimes when people are open and when they mean what they're doing and they love what they're doing. And I could feel that you really love what you're doing and love to have people interact and engage around topics. So that's my first door opener <laughs> for you. <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad you said that. Thank you for the kind words. And most people I know who do podcasts do not do the intro with a guest on the line. And, um, and I always have because I found that it's a great introduction to the conversation and it builds a certain rapport for the audience and for the guest. And so uh, and it's actually a very intentional choice. So, so thank you for saying that. I'm, I'm, I'm very honored. And I, I'm really just so fascinated by your work. And, and one of the things that's really interesting to me is, even though this book is fairly recent, that you've talked about, and when I've researched your work, that you've been working on capturing stories about about conversation and transformation since you were 14 years old. And I'm wondering, what what got you interested in this at age 14, and what have you learned since then? Where it started was I found a scrapbook that had in it pictures of my father 
when he was going through school. And in one case, he was the valedictorian of his class. In another case, he was in the drama club and he was on stage performing. And there were a couple of other things about him I didn't know. And I was really curious because my family was not open in conversations about themselves. It was as though there was no history behind them. And other families I'd go and I'd hear stories about trips together and grandparents and things like that. So I I had at an early age an ability to keep track of patterns and compare patterns. Anyway, what I found out from my father, which he had never told any of us, is that he he was a stutterer when he was uh, young, up until he was in high school. He stuttered and it started when he was five. He had a twin sister, which we didn't know about either. And my grandmother said to him that she didn't want boys, she wanted girls. So here it was, she had, my brother and my father had the sister who ended up passing away at five and a half. And um, so my, my father was an emotional orphan, which is the name that I gave to what I saw happen to him. Um, that not feeling wanted and um, emotionally orphaned from his family in a way. My dad stuttered most of his life. He, as a result of that, grew an extraordinary auditory capacity to remember things. And he taught himself um, when he got it to be an adult seven languages just by listening to audio tapes. But in the meantime, he had this stuttering, which was very disconcerting. And what I learned that changed my life and that, that really triggered the 14-year-old interest that you talked about is that there was a teacher that took my dad under his wing or under her wing and helped him uh, be able to stand on the stage, step into a new identity, a new role. And when he was on the stage, he stopped stuttering. When he was in that role, he, he didn't come out as that same person who couldn't connect. He came out as somebody who was very profoundly good, in fact, at, at acting. And, and his stutter disappeared to the point that he decided to stay in that identity. And it enabled him to do all the other things that I found as those news clippings. Oh, wow. That- it's remarkable to me whenever I talk to clients, friends, family members, and we talk about family how much family does shape us. And I know one of the things you and I will talk about today is just what also we can do for um, the children in our lives to help them to grow this skill set because it is a skill, it's learnable, and, um, and, really, and really broaden that because you know, a lot of times we, we do the best we can with the tools we've seen in our lives. And, so, um, and that's one of the reasons I'm, I'm so glad that we're talking about this because it'll help us all to, to get better tools around it. And uh, one of the things I think that is really critical that I see in the book is um, you make the point that, that conversation is really the root of everything. Conversation leads to great relationships and relationships ultimately lead to culture especially in an organization. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so um, when I started my business 35 years ago, I was I called a benchmark communications. Benchmark is a standard of excellence. And I wanted to understand what the best communicators were doing because I felt if I could do that, that would have some uh, way of unlocking what people were studying back then is how do you change a culture? So it's not like we've just all of a sudden been interested in culture in the last five or 10 years. This is something that has been out there, but it may not have been so obvious about the ways to understand a culture and to develop a culture. And um, I saw a lot of companies putting seven years and millions and millions of dollars into changing their systems and uh, how things were organized. But, and that was culture for them. It was the parts, the, the five, the seven S's and things like that. And I saw a missing hole that I wanted to dig in and explore. And that was that the thing that it's all about conversations 
so if we can understand, you know, how to get to the next level of greatness, this is my quote, depends on the quality of the culture, which depends on the quality of relationships, which depends on the quality of conversations. Everything happens through conversation and it's a hierarchy so that if we work at the conversational level, the interact, what I call interaction dynamics and how they, what they look like, what they look like when we're observing them, what they look like when we go inside the brain and watch what the brain does or at the level of chemistry, what's happening. As I would go back into what gives us the capacity for conversations, I found out a world opened up that explained those relationships and took us back to, at the moment of contact, what's happening in our chemistry. And what surprised me was all the years that I've spent learning this, I continue to have be in awe and be mesmerized by the alchemy of conversations. Mm. Um, and right. And it's, so once we learn how to do that, and once, once we learn that we all are like magic people in a way and can create changes that we never thought possible. Uh, and once we put that in the hands, even of children, which I know we're going to talk about, um, something happens. We, we master a better way to create um, and enable growth in human beings and high levels of connectivity in human beings and a way to unleash. We talk a lot about unleashing power in people. And I've never seen anything more effective than conversational intelligence to do that. Yeah. When I read that, I was thinking that's just so critical. And in a way, it's it's very obvious, but I think that it's also something that it's it's one of those things that's so obvious. I think sometimes we miss the importance of it, that mm -hmm. everything really does come down to how well we can navigate this thing we call conversation and uh, and 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 the critical importance of it. I just love the way you frame that. And mm -hmm. I'm I'm curious, you know, you've also one of the things the key parts of the model you've developed is a, is a dashboard about on three levels of conversation. I, I'd like to get into, you know, just some of the, the perspective of that so our audience can can appreciate it. But but I'm also curious, like, how did that come about uh, that you discovered these three levels? Oh, my goodness. Let me, let me start with the dashboard because what I've done is I've created a model that has levels to it. And so you can use the same uh, dash, conversational dashboard to do different things and to bring out different types of understanding. So imagine for people who can't see it right now, imagine you have a car and your car has a dashboard that gives you, it's like a half of a circle. And the, on the left side, it's like zero. And on the right side, it's, I don't know, 150 miles an hour. And um, it, that dashboard represents for me and for people that are using it, an ability to see what happens on the left side when we're in a certain state. And I'll talk about that in a second or on the right side. And I've mapped on top of it a variety of things that I could talk about that for a whole day, just the dashboard itself and engage people in exercises. And it's, it's in my book so people can see what we're talking about. But if we all imagine for a minute that there is this gauge um, that goes from left to right. And I discovered it when I was working with a company in Hollywood, I was hired to go out there and they were three owners they were not getting along. They all had different ideas about how they wanted to change and grow their company. And imagine that happens in every company, in a department, in a relationship where people have different ideas about how they want to move forward and they get stuck in the ideas and they get stuck in what I call level two positional conversations. And I saw that and I labeled that in my mind that these people are arguing about each other's different ideas when in fact, I, as the third person, I, the third I in a, in a way was watching them and saying, oh my God, they have such good ideas, each of them, 
but because they were arguing each other's idea down so they could create more space to speak, then they lost the power of engaging in what I call level three conversations, which is where, and they're called transformational, where there's a way to open up your mind and your heart to other people. And the mind and heart connection is important. And when, we, when we're able to do that, then we have an appreciation for another. We're not looking to move them off the table so we can have more airspace. We're looking to see what we can learn that's deeper that even they may not realize is part of their unfolding aspiration. And all of a sudden we start, and I'm going to use some words now that you can, I hope you'll push back on because I know they're a little bit unusual, but when we're in level three, there's the ability for human beings, whether you're in a team, whether you're a parent with a child, whether you're peers and colleagues, or even people that are in conflict, there's an energy field that appears and um, it enables us to almost channel or pick up some ideas even before they're thought or before they're fully conscious that open up conversations and give people fuel to be co-creators together. And that's what's on the right side of this dashboard is the word co-creation. And if you can imagine the opposite, on the left side is resistor. And that's where we're resisting engaging with each other or being open to influence because we're still stuck very much in our own idea. So this dashboard, when I stood in front of this group of 29 people from a very high-powered egocentric world, and I said, I actually said, I looked up and I said, God, help me, please. This is, I know this is going to be hard. And then <laughs> yeah. all of a sudden, <laughs> the, so, somehow that my channel was open for that to happen in my mind. And you know, we all get these things where we get big ahas. And I had the ability to draw it right on the, on the flip chart. And I drew this dashboard and I decided I was going to find out where people in the room were in their ability to be open to each other. And when I turned around and made some comments about the session and then said, you know, I'd like to start with where are you in the room and asked people if they could just identify where they a resistor, were they skeptical, were they wait and see, which is the middle. And then were they willing to be experimenters? And I spelled it mentor of experiments. So the word, the word is expera. And then there's a big M for the word mentor, experimenter, and then co-creator. And it took them about, I don't know, a minute and a half to raise their, anybody to raise their hand. And first person said, you know, I'm in resistor. We've had three consultants before you, and it's only gotten us more frustrated and we're not going to get anywhere and so, so forth and so forth. And I waited and kept asking the question. Oh, by the way, I thanked him for what insights he gave us in the room. So I created an appreciation around his sharing. And I did that with uh, as many people as were willing to open, you know, raise their hand. And that was the beginning of this dashboard. And without saying anything other than it was extraordinary, everybody that was there started to speak up. And we ended up with an amazing amount of insight into the culture that created a transformation and this $15 million struggling creative services, if you will, company ended up growing to 250 million in three years. Oh, wow. Yeah. One of the other things I'm really interested to is the exact opposite, the level one conversation, which is you, you talked about earlier was that resistance. And my guess is most people in most organizations are in the level one or level two space a lot. Um, and unfortunately, level three is probably the exception. And and I'm curious about level one, and I'm curious in spe specifically about the long shelf life of cortisol. 
and how we respond to threats and how long that lasts. Could you help yeah. us to frame that even better? Yeah. So what you were talking about is is that um, what we have are bookends. What we what we talk about in conversational intelligence are the bookends of conversations, and that is at one end. And you mentioned the word cortisol. At one end, we have a hormone called cortisol, which gets produced when we're being triggered, when we feel we have to protect ourselves, when somebody threatens us, when somebody makes us feel that what we just said was not important or valued, that minimizes us in front of peers, which is the most horrible thing that you can do. Um, People would rather be hit by a car than stand up in front of a room and have uh, somebody, especially their boss, call call them out and make them limit their value in front of others or even make it judgmental or make it worse, you know, really making them look like they were um, what I call a YSI when the leader says, you stupid idiot in, in front of everybody, you know, it's cortisol producing and cortisol has a shelf life of uh, 26 hours if it's produced under the conditions we just, I just mentioned, and we've been talking about. And so people then when their brain is filled with cortisol, the first thing that happens is that your ability to have trust with others gets clamped down. It literally gets turned off. Trust no longer exists in the brain and distrust is now surfacing. So cortisol and distrust are going hand in hand where um, oxytocin, which helps us bond with others and connect with others. uh, And when we feel trust, that is the hormone that's flooding our brain. So those are the bookends, the cortisol and oxytocin. And leaders need to know this framework. And they also need to know the words and the behaviors that activate our cortisol because with a 26 hour shelf life, that's over 24 hours, that's more than a day. Um, And if you're so upset that you talk to people and people get you agitated because they complain about the boss that you just spoke with and it activates you more, that 26 hours can have another boost. And who knows how long? I mean, how long does it take to get an ulcer? (laughs) You know, you could have cortisol in the brain and at the same time producing a, a stomach ulcer from being upset with your boss. This is so, um, this hits so home because just last night I was talking with a client who had had just a really unfortunate communication from someone in their organization earlier in the day. And it was one of those things that it wasn't about her. It just, someone snapped. And, uh, and yet, even though she knows that logically, the cortisol hit. I mean, you could see it in the interactions. It was just so real, and I couldn't help but think of, you know, as she was still processing this, you know, eight, nine, ten hours later, um, how I've been there so many times myself. Someone says something that just, whether it was intended or not, um, didn't think, and and it just stays with you for like a day. And and it's so it's fascinating to me that the the chemistry, you know, supports that that like that really does happen to us biologically. It's not just you know like what we're feeling. It's uh, it's really part of just how we're we're hardwired. Exactly. Hardwired for millions of years. Truthfully, I mean, when Darwin was doing his research, he didn't he he focused on the survival instincts. And that is that we we've learned and we are hardwired. Our DNA is designed to protect us from harm so that our species can thrive and survive. And so that's why we wanted to kill other people that we thought were hurting us or harming us. And a lot of for human beings, as opposed to animals, the harm is ego harm. So if I'm minimized or in some way judged unfairly or the scope of work that I do is now limited and rather than expanded. So I'm speaking to every person who's listening, who has a company, who's trying to develop the company. These words, the difference between we have columns that we put in our what are called one pagers and 
it says like, don't say this, do say this. And people know that the left column is the cortisol producing and the right column is the oxytocin producing. You could go through these pages of things to say and not to say, or to do and not to do. And you will start to see every explanation of why your company's either thriving or not thriving. And it has to do with the language of communication between the leader and, and others, because people mimic leaders. They want to be like leaders. They want to be a leader. And so if you have a leader that tends to, to snap at people or judge people openly and make that a protocol that's okay, you're going to have everybody doing it. And pretty soon the cortisol is going to be the, the, the cocktail that is uh, produced and shared across the company. And that company is going to be limiting, like the company that I met who is in the movie business. And by the way, they're in three of my books because they loved what happened to the company so much that I made them anonymous in the beginning and then I gave their name. But if you can learn to shift, that's where they were in the beginning. People were in very judgmental places and it closed down the ability to tap into our prefrontal cortex, right? This is the executive brain that when people feel connected and trusting of others, first of all, their heart goes into a different type of heartbeat. It's a sine wave that's very smooth. that goes up and down like hills versus when you're in cortisol and the heart picks it up and it's very ragged. It's like static electricity. The heart knows how to translate that and send messages to the brain. The heart sends 50 times more information messages from the heart to the brain when it feels trust or distrust and it lets the brain know to open up or close down. And that's all hardwired in us. Wow. So, fascinating. Fascinating. I know. I still, I know it every day. I see it every day and I'm still fascinated that we've been so incredibly architected as human beings yeah. to handle that. Well, yeah. and that, that's a great lead into something that is important. Uh, you know, you're the grandmother of a four-year-old. I'm the dad of a four-year-old and a two-year-old. And we have a lot of folks in our listening community that if don't have children themselves, uh, have children in their lives. And um, I know one of the things you've been thinking a lot about is how to support children in developing these skills. And what have you discovered on that in the recent past? There's two things that I'll share. And one is that I've discovered that the beliefs about uh, the prefrontal cortex not being available to people until they're 19, 21, you know, older, is so untrue. We've discovered, for example, my children are going to a very unique school. And when they were in first grade, the teacher also, like me, disbelieved the stories about the prefrontal cortex not opening up until later. And um, they started to give kids things that require judgment that young kids don't normally have to, to learn in school. And you could see 100% of the kids in the class, I came in for grandparents day and I watched the kids answer questions, make hypotheses, try to interpret things that were complex. And every single one of them had answers that were so right. And it just shows that we've labeled, again, unfairly, young children as not being ready. And so we don't challenge them. And this school was challenging them. And it, it opens up the capacity for learning. It's a multilingual school. And we know that when you teach kids two languages, it expands their capacity to handle complexity, which again, keeps the prefrontal cortex open. So I guess what I'm saying is that there's a lot for parents to learn about creating environments where kids, instead of they get punished and sitting in the, um, in the corner for asking too many questions, or like I did in school where I asked why too many times and my teacher made me stay after school. And if you remember seeing blackboards that you may not have been around when there were blackboards that, that were teachers were writing on, but. Oh yeah, I, had, I was. Indeed. So I had to write, I will not ask why. And that fueled. Truthfully, that fueled my need to ask why more because I said that's wrong. 
and we've got to teach kids differently. So the the little story that I'll leave with you on on this is that my four-year-old or three-year-old when he was three had a birthday and he had friends and they went out to this place where you could jump all over these air balloon things and slide down slides. And it, it went on for hours and he was so high with oxytocin from engaging with his, his friends, he couldn't go to sleep. And he was laying in bed at nine o'clock at night. And he said, um, my, my daughter-in-law, who's in HR, um, said, Sean, it's time to go to bed. And he said, no, 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 I can't. I have more words to say and more <laughs> questions to ask. <laughs> That's awesome. So it's that push and pull energy yeah. that kids have from the day they're born. They want to be in conversation. So when he started to use words like actually at the age of three, or mm. I'm disappointed at the age of four, knowing how to label his emotions, this little boy is healthier because of it. Oh, of giving kids the chance to have the words, right? I love it's- it. We do a lot of that in our house too of, um, you know, when there's anger or disappointment, we we label emotions like, oh, it seems like you're feeling really disappointed. So they have the language to understand what that means and identify it and then be able to process it better. And uh, that's just, it's, yep. it's so amazing how much better they get at that once they have that language. Yeah. And you just hit on one of the biggest things. There's a lot of new words that are being evolved and developed in the world, technology, language, you know, the things that, that the young kids love because it's, it, it helps them play with toys that they never got to play with before and other things in building their brain. But all of these words mean something. But most of all, if we, we only, we were told going through the programs that I had, the science programs, that there are only seven emotions that people know and share around the world. And we're now learning that that's not true. We've only labeled those seven fear and happiness and um, anger and things like that. But there are many, many more. And the more we get to put words on those emotions and bring them up from a feeling that you can't explain to like you're doing with your children to give it a label that you can explain and also then help upregulate something around it, meaning making something better for them or downregulate relating to take the disappointment away just so that we understand that there is disappointment and we need to do something about it. This is a big step forward for education, whether they're little kids or whether they're adults in college or whether they're parents, we need to learn how to do this. One of the things I often ask guests at the end of conversations is, you know, what you, uh, what you've learned in the last five years where you've changed your thinking. And, um, one of the things that was interesting to me is, uh, you and I weren't sure we were going to be able to talk today because you had a uh, body scan scheduled today, um, uh, because you had mm-hmm. pancreatic cancer. And, um, for those who aren't familiar with pancreatic cancer, it is a, uh, it is a disease that almost nobody survives from. Um, mm. and so I'm curious about your experience in navigating this disease and what you have learned, um, about yourself and about your work. Yeah, it's, it, it was a confluence for me of bringing together what happens when cells become unhappy in the body and when disease is able to penetrate. Now, I ended up with two cancers in the same year, that's this year, and one, when I I had a double mastectomy, and when that was healing, I had a pain underneath my chest, and my doctor didn't understand what it was and wanted to send me to a pain doctor, and lo and behold, I had a tumor in my pancreas that was almost five centimeters, which turned out to be stage four. It had already metastasized, and one doctor that saw me in front of my kids said that your mom may not live more than two months. So... With that diagnosis, I decided to use everything that I was learning from conversational intelligence. Beside getting an amazing doctor who gave me the right cocktails from a chemical standpoint, 
what I started to do is talk to my cells. And I was opened my mind to this by an energy healer who said, give your pancreas, your stomach, your liver, give them names and talk to them and have the kind of conversation that you would like to have with them in order to heal yourself. She did not give me even more advice than that, except to befriend the part of me, the cancer that was teaching me something. And I spent um, the past seven months, eight months talking to myself. And also as a result of doing that, I also ended up bringing conversational intelligence around the globe to a thousand people. And every month I had webinars with people and I was talking to people and sharing that I had my cancer. And I found out that these groups of amazing people had prayer groups that they started around the world to help me on an energetic level. And so what I learned was number one, the cancer was there for a reason. Um, the reason was that I needed to be connecting differently with people. That was how I interpreted it. And so I started to engage with people in a more open, honest, truthful way, sharing what was on my mind more. It's what I teach. So I have to do. And, um, as you said, only 4% of the population with pancreatic cancer survive. My doctor could not believe the rapidity with which the cancer cells started to dissolve. The tumor literally dissolved from my body. And he's never seen that in someone that had that size tumor. Um, they were preparing me with chemo to have an operation and mm. I didn't need the operation. It literally disappeared. So my wow. scan today to see if my body was, you know, in good health and knock on wood, we hope that the last scan was great. We hope that this one will be great. And so in a short time, I just, I think I shared with you probably the biggest ahas that I've had in a lifetime of, you know, the importance of conversations at all levels in our body to yeah. help us heal. Well, thank you for your courage to share. I mean, I, I noticed right away when you and I were talking over email before our conversation today, just how open you were about what was going on with you. And that's not the kind of thing that I think most of us are accustomed to when you just meet someone for the first time. So thank you for being an example of that. And thank you for your courage, uh, not only what you've done, but your courage to uh, bring this work into the world. Um, I've talked to several people about the book since uh, I, it had come across my radar screen originally from one of our listeners. And uh, mm -hmm. everyone mentioned just how impressed they were with this book and, and the model you've uh, you've brought uh, to organizations. So so thank you mm -hmm. so much for it. And, and I, I want to also, um, I know you're very intentional about connecting with people around the work too and in, in, in alignment with conversation, of course. And you would love to hear from people who have questions for you about the model and the conversation today. And so we're going to put a link on the show notes to for folks to get in touch with you. Um, in addition, what else would you like folks to know about getting in touch or your website as far as best ways for folks to connect? Yeah. So um, we have a website, which is conversationalintelligence.com. So the name of the book. And so people go on, can go on the website. They will find a lot of wonderful resources. We have a couple of films. There's one that you get when you hit the homepage. And then the second page, which has videos and interviews and so forth. Um, I had a, a wonderful opportunity. Fran Tarkenton, who many of your listeners will know in the sports arena, quite an incredible football player, amazing actually. And he heard me and I talked to him about his mind and how his mind was helping him when he was in sports, the state of mind that, that he was moving into and he loved it. And so he brought me into Atlanta and we did a whole day together. So I have audio and video with him. I have some neuroscientists and some great little animated uh, storyboard videos for people. But what I would love to hear is if people love this field and are curious the contact us on our website enables you to reach out and ask questions to me 
and I'm religious about writing back to people. So if you want to open up a conversation and ask things that have been on your mind about why conversations are what they do and how they influence all of us and questions that you need to know, I'm open to engage with people. So for those who are willing and want to reach out, I'd love to start a conversation. Oh, fabulous. Well, thank you so much for your wisdom, Judith. I I really appreciate you taking your time to speak with me and to share uh, this great work with our audience. I know so many people will uh, will check this out and uh, and want to learn more about it. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. You've been a wonderful person to talk to. I said to you that there was something that I felt that was very magical when you asked the questions you did. They were so different when we were emailing. And now having a chance to be with you and experience you as a uh, interviewer, I'm so grateful for your energy and your the way you think. And um, and you brought out a lot of great stories that I'm thrilled to share with people and hope that they will in some way be impacted to want to know more and want to reach out. Thank you for the kind words. And uh, the feeling is very much mutual. And I'm, uh, I'm really excited to uh, share this conversation with our audience. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Judith Glazer is the author of Conversational Intelligence. We'll have all the links to everything we mentioned in the show notes as well. As always, the best way to receive the show notes and details of what we talked about in today's episode is to be on the weekly leadership guide. And the best way to get access to that is to activate your free Coaching for Leaders membership on the coachingforleaders.com website. And when you do that, you will get the weekly leadership guides every Wednesday with the show notes and resources I found online during the week that I think will help support you in your leadership development. You'll also get access to a whole bunch of other things. And one of them is immediate access to my brand new 10-day audio course that's titled 10 Ways to Empower the People You Lead. It is an audio course that I've developed by going back over the last five years and finding the most important conversations that I think will help you to empower others from all the experts we've had on the shows. And I have boiled that down to less than 10 minutes a day for 10 days. And the key pieces that I think are most important for you to get the best immediate practical actions that will help you to become a better leader. So it's a great starting point if you're just beginning with the show over the last couple of episodes. And the best way to get access to that is just to go over to coachingforleaders.com. You'll see right on the main page, you can activate your free membership. And that'll start the course as well as give you access to everything in the membership portal. One of the other things that's in the membership portal for free access as well is a link to my library. In fact, you'll see a button that says Dave's Library once you get in there. And what that is, is a database of everything that I've been finding online, literally everything for the last two to three years. All of the weekly leadership guides, all of the articles, podcasts, videos that I find and mention in all of those guides, that is all fully databased in the back end of our system using a service called Pinboard. And once you log in, you can go in and access my library pull everything uh, by topic that will be helpful to you. If you're search, trying to search an, for an article on a specific topic on leadership or anything else by that matter, it is database there. Uh, in fact, I find lots of things like many of you online that I think are helpful around topics of uh, parenting, for example. I database all those, put those in those that system too. So when you get in there, you can search by topic of lots of great articles, 
resources online that'll be helpful to you. So again, the best way to get access to all of that, coachingforleaders.com, activate your free membership. And speaking of today's episode, several related episodes that will also be helpful to you if you want to continue to build your conversational intelligence is episode 91 was titled how to listen when someone is venting. Mark Golston was on that show. He's a real expert in conversation as well. And we talk through uh, how to handle a situation with a customer or colleague when they are just, uh, they're just venting and really upset. It is a extremely helpful model. So episode 91 is the one to check out for that. Also on episode number 161, uh, Bonnie and I talked about how to address difficult conversations. That's a past Q&A show, but a couple of the questions in specific were about how to handle the most some of the most difficult conversations. We talked through a bunch of resources, including some of the things we mentioned on today's episode. So again, that's episode 161. And then finally, episode 177, Mark Sievercorp was on to help us understand how to start a conversation with anyone. It's a really helpful model. If you're meeting someone for the first time, if you're out there trying to build your professional network uh, and you want to get started on just having conversations with people, episode 177 is a great place to start. For all the past episodes, just go to coachingforleaders.com slash the episode number, and that will get you started on doing that. On next episode, I'm really pleased to be able to welcome Muriel Mignon Wilkins. She is appearing to help us discover how to improve our executive presence. She's the co-author of the book, Own the Room, Discover Your Signature Voice to Master Your Leadership Presence. And if you've ever received feedback, like many of my clients have over the years, of, well, you need to improve your executive presence. It's one of those pieces of feedback. A lot of times people don't know what to do with. We're going to talk in detail about that show. So in that show of how to actually do that. And it's a really helpful and practical conversation to improve your executive presence. And speaking of which, uh, if you haven't in the past, submit your question for consideration on the next Q&A show. We air those the first Monday of every month. You can submit your question at coachingforleaders.com. Dot com slash feedback. Have a great week and see you next Monday.